and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. In today's episode, Jimmy Fennessy and I are talking to Paul Whitcover, the Associate Dean for the Online Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program at Southern New Hampshire University. He's here to talk about his recent novel, Lincolnstein, but we're also going to talk about historical fiction as a genre and the research skills necessary to write good historical fiction. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Paul Whitcover, and I do many things. I'm a writer, a published novelist. I also am a teacher of creative writing, and currently I'm the associate dean of the online MFA program at Southern New Hampshire University. Paul, could you give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are? Obviously, there's the creative side for writing, but also the academic side. So interested to hear how you got there. Yeah, I often think of myself as uh, defined by that line in a replacement song. Uh, One, how does it go? One foot, one foot on the curb, the other one in the gutter. Um, I, I came to academia. Now, I don't know which which of those academia qualifies as the gutter or the curb, but uh, I came to academia. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can go back and forth on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I came kind of accidentally. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I've always been a writer and have kind of structured my, my career around writing. I've published um, seven novels, I think, a collection of short stories um, that a lot of, you know, journalism, book reviews, um, critical pieces on uh, literature, things like that. And uh, it, was, it was kind of through teaching, uh, which I began to do in order to supplement my income as a writer that, that brought me to SNHU. And, and ultimately from there, I became a team lead, which is uh, kind of a, a, a post that involves um, being sort of a mentor to other instructors. And from there, I became um, a dean. I almost accidentally, really, just because the previous dean was taking a leave of absence. Um, they asked me to step in while she was gone, and she never came back. Because she decided that she was going to move in the opposite direction and concentrate on her own writing. And her first book came out and, and did very well. And her uh, second book is coming out in the spring. Joan Smith is her name. A wonderful writer. Yeah, Joan's really cool. We we miss her, but we also, of course, are happy to have you on board. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons that we have Paul here talking to us today is that he his most recent book is called Lincolnstein, and it just came out uh, what late last late or just this year, right? Twenty twenty two. Just about a year ago. Oh, okay, it's twenty twenty one. Yeah. Okay, so this is a novel. Uh, it's, it's, but it's a uh, historical fiction, uh, involves Abraham Lincoln. So I don't want to do any spoilers here. So why don't you tell us about the book? What, do, what is a, what's a good starting point for, uh, for understanding Lincolnstein? Well, I can tell you how the idea came to me, um, which is that there are, this is an idea that I had for many, many years, um, but I couldn't figure out how to write it, uh, mainly because there are a lot of, um, it's, you know, set during this, during the, at very end of the Civil War, um, after Lincoln's assassination, um, there are some. Um, there are a lot of uh, important characters, and one 
especially who's a person of color. And I felt like as a, as a, you know, a, a white male writer, I didn't have the, the right really to write about that person's life and inner life. And it took me a long time to figure out a way to get into the story that felt legitimate to me and authentic and didn't feel like I was stealing something that didn't belong to me. And whether I succeeded or not, of course, is up to the reader to decide. But I felt, you know, ultimately that I that I was able to tell the story. The story that I wanted to tell was there are all kinds of kind of apocryphal stories uh, recounted by uh, former enslaved persons uh, about having seen Lincoln um, wandering about the the by you know the roads and 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 backwoods byways of of the South. Um, during, before, and, and after the Civil War. And it always struck me as incredibly interesting that, that people would recount having not just seen him, but had conversations with him. Um, and, uh, you know, my, I write speculative fiction, and I began to think about, well, how, how, how could that possibly have happened? Um, and I kind of devised by stealing from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a way that maybe it could have happened if Lincoln was assassinated and the government had a means of resurrecting him, would they have tried to do so? And that's kind of where the book begins. There are efforts to do that. Things go awry and, uh, a kind of a hunt takes place <clears throat> across the South as an agent is dispatched um, to kind of recover uh, Lincoln or terminate Lincoln, who who is no longer Lincoln. He's he's now uh, ha has the personality of another person, an another man, um, or to be more accurate, I guess their personalities are kind of mingled now, and it's hard to hard to know exactly which one of them is prevalent. Yeah, it's a. Um, I just read the book over the last week or so, and it's. Um, I really enjoyed the book to start off with. It's. Um, I thought it was an interesting. I mean, again, I, I won't give anything away tw towards the end of the book or anything, but it does have an interesting. When I first saw the book, and when I first heard about the book, I kind of jumped to the assumption that this was going to be like. Um, Kind of a goofy book like the like the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, yeah. uh, you know the Seth Graham Smith, I think his name was uh, that he wrote like twenty years ago or fifteen years ago. Really so I was kind of some zombies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, at first, that's kind of what I was wondering if that's what was going on here. But I was actually, um, I liked that you played it straight in the book. Here, it's really not. I mean, there's some goofy moments here and there, but it's not a you know, it's not a slapstick. Um, you know, send up or anything. It's, it, 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 it felt like you played it, you played it, you played it seriously. You took you and, and you didn't really worry too much about the, you know, the science behind it. Like basically when, it, when, when they do the thing, where, like you said, where Lincoln's brain basically is replaced by another guy's brain, you don't spend any time talking about like the science behind it or how do they make it. You just basically just said, it just did it. It just happened. Yeah, <laughs> and then let's move on with the story. Yeah, real science. I mean, you know, I could do a little <laughs> hand waving there and I do, you know, I kind of, I kind of, you know, hit the special effects button at that point, and, and, but try to blip over it as, as quickly and colorfully as possible. 
Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so the book is the rest of the book I thought was, it, it was more serious than I expected. Um, and, but that's, that's good. Uh, because yeah, this is not a goofy, um, a vampire, you know, he's, it's not Lincoln doing superhuman acts with like broadswords and chopping off <laughs> the heads of bad guys or anything. It's just, it's, it's, um, fairly, you know, it's not, maybe not, you know, medically accurate, <laughs> but it, it felt like it was a realistic type situation. And so I, I, I thought that was an interesting twist to it that, that kind of colored the, my whole experience with the, uh, with the book a bit. And when you're saying that you were concerned about accurately portraying a a former slave, we'll just put it that way. Um, well, let me ask you: How did you finally overcome your kind of hesitance about that? Well, I, I realized that I could I could um, I could have my main character be a white person, basically. And I could engage with the history of um, of a kind of kind of the the tendency of white white people to speak for black people, and white characters to recast the black story as their own, um, and black history as their own. And that became one of the one of the central themes of the book. Uh, was you know the the, the idea that. The, the white person who thinks this is a story about them uh, c- comes to discover that it's not their story at all. It's someone else's story. But I don't have access to that. Uh, I didn't feel. So I had to portray it kind of indirectly. And I had to devise some literary sleight of hand, I guess, in order to um, uh, portray that in, in what I thought was a legitimate way. Yeah, and um, it just so happens that um, one of the sections of the book that kind of jumped out at me, all kind of along those lines, um, was in one of the pages you you talked about. There was at one point the 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 former slave lectures the main character a little bit about um, kind of about that 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 white people tend to kind of put themselves as this as the victims in all of this. Um, I was trying to think of what, uh, oh yeah, here we go. Um, so they, uh, okay. So folks see me, they don't see no Abraham Lincoln. They see a black man. Ain't that something? It's like they got a sixth sense for it. And when white folks see a black man, why they don't see nobody at all? Just another N word. So that's how we're going to do it. You be the wounded hero and I'll be the loyal bondsman, faithful yet despite the war, despite being set free. There ain't nothing you white folks like to believe in more than the idea of your own goodness. You will ignore all evidence to the contrary just to make yourselves feel better about all the evil that you have done or allowed to be done in your name. Sure, white folks pay a blind, pity a blind man, but that ain't nothing compared to the pity you feel for the real victims of this misbegotten world, your own damn selves. <laughs> this is a story that you don't get tired of telling nor of hearing. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and uh, and it, it's interesting that you phrased, that you just brought it up there too, because that was one of the, sections that really jumped out at me um because it it felt a little bit like there was and there throughout the book i felt like there were references to other kind of famous works regarding slavery and so that felt a little bit like some passages from um uncle tom's cabin where there's some sections in there where some of the white slave owners are a bit reflective on their situations compared to black slaves and all that so it felt like there was some reminiscences there 
Yeah, um, I mean, this is a this is a book that that is engaged not just with the you know actual history of the of the United States during a particular period of time, but also with works of literature that were written about that period of time or 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 around that period of time. Um, you know, it's it, it it is in close conversation, I guess you could say, with with uh, you know Huckleberry Finn. Uh, with the works of Faulkner and many other writers, and there are little bits and pieces. Well, when it comes to Twain, of course, it's more than just a little bit. Uh, but but there's bits and pieces taken from history and from literary history, and all mashed together in the in the book. And that's one of the things I like about writing uh, writing um, historical fiction is the ability to do that. Like what helped you to capture that that voice then? So we talked a lot about the um, the literary uh, influences that are there. Um, also wondering about the historical ones. So you've got this source material of like literary history, um, but also history, history. So history, history. Um, so so what was your source material, and how did you kind of translate that um, to develop these characters and to develop this narrative? Is there was there a specific process, or was it a lot of first person narratives, like, um, just interested in how you did that. It's a mix, really a, a mix of like, you know, uh, looking at works of literature that were written about that period. For example, um, Dr. O, Dr. O's book, The March, which I think is an incredible work of, of uh, historical fiction set during that same period of time. Um, and kind of mining source material like that for, um, um, dialect, tone, things like that. I'm from the South myself, so I feel like I have a, you know, I grew up immersed in the in the, the, the mythology of the lost cause, and I, I know what people from the South sound like and what they talk like. Um, also, you know, primary source material, there was a lot of uh, slave, uh, former slave narratives um, that were compiled, you know, by, by the U.S. government um, in the, the WPA and prior to that. Um, and I drew on a lot of those accounts, um, specifically the apocryphal uh, recollections of meetings with, with Lincoln or, or sightings of Lincoln. Um, and the, my, my no novel is dedicated to three women um, and all of them are former slaves whose, whose primary source material I drew on uh, at various points in the novel. Yeah, you have those, um, I don't know, interstitial scenes kind of like what between the there's the main story. But then, yeah, you have like a, you'll take a break and have yeah. a couple of. Pages and that's one of the up. literary sleights of hand that I was that I was referring to earlier that allowed me to present this perspective, but not in an interior way. Yeah, it, it did feel like it, it, it read a lot like the um, like you're saying, the WPA interviews from the New Deal, uh, the slave narratives and all that. So that, that was an interesting uh uh, way to do that. And then um, <clears throat> kind of going back to your your literary connections, um, and uh, Jimmy, you raise a good point about the, the history connections of it. It was interesting that there were so many of Lincoln's quotes from Lincoln's speeches just kind of yeah. scattered throughout the text, just kind of without really any, you know, just all of a sudden he was, someone would say mystic chords of memory and better angels of our nature and all those things that just kind of um, were, were Lincoln's, but sometimes they were even in the mouths of other people. Um, there, and then there was, um, 
there was a reference to a Frederick Douglass quote, um, the, uh, you know, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Uh, that was from the um, autobiography of Frederick Douglass, um, probably some other places too, but that's the one where I remember it the best from. So, and I think that, quote came out of the mouth of one of the slave owners, I believe. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to, to see these kind of quotes that are kind of floating throughout all the way down to us um, historically, but kind of popping up in the, in the, the text of the yeah. story. Too. I mean, that's, that that's the beauty of, for me anyway, of writing historical fiction is that I can cut those things loose from their, you know, from their, from their owners and use them as ever, I, however I see fit for the, for the, in the service of the story, hopefully, um, still still maintaining some some connection to the history that spawned them. The other thing that that jumped out at me um, while I was reading it, the kind of getting back to your your um, idea about trying to capture the story of former slaves and all that, was whenever the N word was used, it was you you went with the N dash 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 yeah. um, uh, convention. Was that how, how do you make that decision? Because that's one of the things that we run into as historians yeah. all the time is if I'm going to quote a slave owner or whoever, and it comes to that word, uh, historians have kind of wrestled with this for you know a generation now. How do I use that word, if, knowing that all the hurtful connotations, or do I you know, put brackets N word or what, what do I do? So how, how did you settle on doing the end dash dash yeah dash, this dash was something that i was very concerned about and that, that i thought quite a bit about and the solution to the problem at least again a solution that felt viable to me um occurred really in the very last stages of the book you know it was probably in its you know ultimate draft it was already had already been accepted by the publisher uh, it was back to me for copy edits and um, I just, it just occurred to me that, you know, in the novels of that time, very often it was a convention, as you point out, for, for any kind of uh, curse words or, 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 or words that would not be acceptable in polite society to be, um, to be represented that way. They would have like the first letter followed by a couple of dashes. And um, that struck me as a perfect kind of way to um, not only uh, maintain fidelity with the idea, the conceit that this is a novel that, that is actually being written um, at the time uh, rather than something that's being written today. Um, so it, it, was, it was true to the conventions of its period, um, but also it struck me as a useful way of kind of tying uh, the story Yet another way of tying this the story and themes of the novel into um, to what's going on today, as you point out, not just in history but in in uh, all forms of uh, of uh, expression, really, like what's acceptable to use and to whom is it acceptable. But yeah, but yeah, and that's kind of what I figured happened there, and I thought that actually was kind of a clever way to do it because you're right. There's all those old novels. Um, you know, ironically, the N word usually was not censored yeah, because it exactly. was not quite as offensive to people's right. sensibilities at the time. But yeah, whenever they would say Damn. like "damned," yep. it would be "d dash 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 d" or something. Yep. So, yeah, that that was that that was uh, an interesting um, way to put the novel into kind of a hist almost a historical um, 
lingo, I guess. There's probably a better word for that than lingo. But so you already mentioned the 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 Huck Finn um connection here. And I don't think it's a spoiler by saying that the 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 main character, the white man that you were talking about, who became the main character of the book, his name is Huckleberry Finn. Um, now this is if this is occurring in 1865, you know, Twain didn't write that book until what the late 1880s. So wh- where did that come from? What's the what was the choice to go with that naming the, with that? And there's some other familiar characters that pop right. up with well that i mean this goes you. back again to my original conception of the novel where i felt like um i i felt like i had a pretty good idea of whose brain was going to be put into into lincoln's body and then it was just a matter of working out you know the logistics of it um you know it's true that twain didn't write his book until long well somewhat long after the civil war was over but uh it's set you know, prior to the Civil War by a, by a number of years. So it was an educated guess on my part how old Huck Finn would be during the time of the Civil War and, and what uh, pursuits he would be engaged in during the Civil War. Um, but I think it, I, I feel pretty happy with how that, that part of the book turned out, actually. Um, those, you know, Huckleberry Finn, the, the, the novel and the character and Jim those are such an indelible part of uh, American literary history, I think, and inseparable really from American history. I mean, this is one one of those uh, areas in which the two are just like, you know, so closely intertwined that they're indistinguishable. Um, That's really what gave me the courage, I think, uh, or audacity or whatever you want to call it, to, to think that as a white person, I could write this book because I felt like, well, this is, you know, this is the American story and it's something that every American writer um, has a, uh, a right to to um, investigate in their fiction. Was there anybody along the way that you kind of checked in with um, just to check on, you know, the way that the characters were unfolding or or the dialogue? Or was this strictly from research, um, literary convention and your own imagination? Yeah, I'm the kind of writer that doesn't really show my work to anybody until it's finished. Um, and then I check in with my agent and I, I value their feedback highly. Um, and a couple of other people I also pay attention to. Uh, but mostly I just kind of work in a vacuum. And so I'd like to, I think at this point, it's probably best, let's start talking about just kind of historical fiction in general. Um, because this is a, it's a, it's an odd category obviously i mean it 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 is oftentimes um the authors of historical fiction kind of take great pains to show that they've done their research they've done their their you know the the legwork to establish the the proper historical context in which they're placing their story um so and and since you are the the dean for the creative writing program and the creative writing or the mfa in creative writing and that program there is speculative fiction, like you mentioned, and historical fiction is kind of one version of that. And then I imagine other fields of that would probably be like sci-fi and fantasy and all of and, and things like that. But historical, we'll, we'll stay focused on historical fiction for now, I suppose. So, what are the kind of essential? You know, what 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 should people that want to write historical fiction? What should they know? I mean, what are the what are the what are the kind of things that the central teachings that you might have for someone that's that 
kind of is toying with the idea of historical fiction. Well, I mean, you have to have a respect for history. You have to have an interest in and love of history. That was my minor in college. Um, I feel like I could have gone that route instead of gone the, the route of, of being a writer um, of fiction, that is. Um, the thing about historical fiction that that I really like about it, or one of the things I really like about it is that, you know, if you're the kind of writer like me who has difficulty with a plot, right? History provides you with the plot. If you're writing a historical novel, you have, um, and especially if you're writing one that includes some historical characters, you have to be uh, accurate in how you, not only how you depict those characters, but the various timeline and intersection of the timelines of the various characters all have to add up and line up with what is known to history, unless you're writing some kind of you know, alternate history, in which case you have to be accurate in your history, but only up to a certain point. And then you tur- tur- take a sharp left turn and anything goes. But I mean, the main thing is I think it helps a historical, a writer of historical fiction to have some training in history, um, to know how to handle resources and, and where to find resources and um, not necessarily how to use them because the use of resources in, in uh, fiction, historical resources in fiction is obviously very different than it is in, in a standard historical text in that I'm not providing any footnotes. I'm taking what, you know, I'm taking what I need from wherever I find it and using it however I want. Um, but I'm still, I still have a kind of an internal compass that I'm steering by in order to try to make everything add up and, and kind of remain true in, in important ways to the time about which I'm writing. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, um, about your, your personal philosophy in relation to, to using history. Is it more of a, a guideline and can you play fast and loose with maybe the, the dates or the decades or, or certain people? Um, the latest season of The Crown comes to mind, the big controversy around that, uh, that the argument that the writer um, or the director it hasn't been as accurate to the portrayal of the queen and the royal family um, as like historically accurate. And we have sources and data to, to show that this isn't accurate. Um, and her response has been, well, it's true to the, the feel of what was going on at that time period. Um, so, so is there a responsibility and maybe it's not really a responsibility, but a personal choice for the, the artist to either stay true to the historical narrative and to make things fit within the timeline and, and the characters, or is there, um, is it more of a, a guide, but you can play fast and loose with it. And there isn't really a sense that you're constrained by those historical elements. I, I, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I really think it, it comes down to what the individual writer is trying to do. Um, I think it's extremely problematic if you are sending signals to your readers that you're writing a straight up historical novel that is, that is you know, hewing as closely as possible to recorded events. And then suddenly you introduce a, you know, elements that diverge wildly from that. Um, it can certainly work, but but you have to lay the groundwork carefully for that for something like that. Or if it's just clear right from the outset that you're just riffing on it, it's all a, it's not a joke exactly, but it but it's all grist for the mill. You know, it's all raw material for you to manipulate it however you like. Those kind of novels can be super fun um, and you know and meaningful as well. Um, but it's again, it's a matter of consistency. I think it's important that if you're a writer, that you kind of let your reader know 
here's the kind of book I'm writing. Here's what you have every right to expect. And, um, and then be, you know, adhere to the rules that you yourself have made and laid down as the writer. So it sounds like one of the big um, uh, central kind of ideas that basically what everybody needs to do is make sure that they're just being internally consistent to what they're trying to do. They want, you know, if you, if you're going to go the tongue in cheek route, stay with the tongue in cheek route. If you want to go the, the serious route, keep it the serious route. Don't throw in some tongue in cheek stuff just halfway through, which might throw things off. I, I don't know. I mean, there may be situations where that would work. But yeah, we can always think of it exceptions like a, it's, to, to these rules. Um, but I think by and large, yeah. uh, consistency is extremely important. Especially and the honesty in, yeah. too is what you said, right? Like the, um, the honesty. So the loosely based on versus very, the, the caveat that this is loosely based on historical information versus we're staying as close to the historical information as possible. Yeah, exactly. It's also often seemed to me that when you're talking historical fiction, there's kind of two levels of it in a way where one is that, okay, I'm going to adopt a certain historical context and I'm going to create a story with all new characters that are going to kind of happen in this context, probably, I don't know, a small village in Prussia or something which won't have much influence on the rest of the world. It's probably, they're not going to really be known to anybody. And so therefore I'm kind of safe by talking about these people that no one's ever heard of, but no one should have heard of these because they're, you know, these are small, you know, they're small stories in some remote area of the world, but we're going to focus on on making sure that at least the context that they're living in is accurate. There seems to be that version of historical fiction but then there's the other kind that just goes all out and grabs onto the world famous people, kind of like you did here with Lincolnstein. And I'm wondering, did did you feel nervous at all about embrace about jumping onto Lincoln as as your as your your central historical figure here? I mean, by all accounts, um, Lincoln has the most words <clears throat> written about him of any, of any person in humanity, except Jesus. And so it, it, did you feel any nerves about taking on a, a topic like that? in something that's, that's no, so well known. Because I mean, as you point out, so many words have already been written. What, what are my 50,000 words added to that? <laughs> Fair point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that those, that those are two very different approaches to, to writing historical fiction. And, and, uh, you know, one one is one is essentially timeless in that, as you point out, you know, like it's that Prussian village, you know, is it set in 1870? Is it set in 1820? Is it set in 1917? I mean, there are, yes, there are like external historical factors that are going to be, that are going to be, uh, you know, impinging upon the lives of the people in this village, regardless of what, when you set it. But, but I think probably, probably part of that story is going to be to to express something timeless about the way life is lived in this village, right? Um, that's very different from a story that's set like, you know, in, in a particular place at a particular time for a particular reason, right? Because something happens on this date and we want to introduce a cast of characters that's leading up to that date, Titanic, right? Or, you know, 
or, or, you know, December 7th, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor. Um, we know, and of course, you're reading a novel like that, you, you know what's going to happen, right? It's not the suspense of like, wow, is, are the Japanese going to bomb Pearl Harbor? No, it's, it's like the suspense lies rather in, in what's going to happen to these characters that we've come to, be, to grow very attached to. So, uh, or I guess there's the third option, which is where you just add in something that's kind of completely ahistorical and to think about like um, the Harry Turtledove novel, The Guns of the South, where what was it, yeah. a machine gun was accidentally sent back yeah. in time <laughs> to the Confederate Army and they were able to do- to destroy everybody because they yeah. had Uzi's well, or something. Then you're, then you're talking about, you know, alternate history or counterfactual as the yeah. academic term for, for it is, right. but they're the same thing. And yeah, those are, those are also um, incredibly uh, interesting and, and fun to write and read. Yeah, that, those what if histories. It always yeah. It was a, whenever I had to grade those papers, it was like always <laughs> interesting to see where students would go with it. But it was a sense of it would just infuriate me because I was like, you're writing a historical paper, and what you're doing is inserting all these speculations about what if something else happened. But you're a historian, so you need to go with what did happen so that you can then talk about the the connections and the, how all of that played out. It was just um, his, I mean, his uh, history students always want to go down that route yeah. of speculation. And I always wondered if it was because they were bored with what actually happened. They didn't want to continue like doing the hard work of what actually happened. So they just wanted to speculate or if it's just kind of human na- nature to a, uh, to speculate about things like, oh, this would be fun to think about, like what would have happened, yeah. if, you know. I think it is human nature. I mean, you mentioned Turtledove a minute ago. I mean, he's he's got a PhD in history. He's a he's a trained historian, and what he does in his books is applies the historical method, but to to um, imaginary events that have that that take off from uh, you know actual recorded history. Um, something something new happens it might not be something as egregious as the introduction of a machine gun um but it might be but then the story the rational you know uh mind of this story and once again takes takes over and extrapolates from that piece of information or or whatever that's been introduced into the historical record to to change it in some way and then like extrapolates as logically as possible what what the results would be? I th- I think that that's that's an exercise. It's like a, a armchair historian exercise. <laughs> One of the things you brought up earlier was um, I think some of the stories that inspired you to to think about doing this project in the first place. So these various accounts of having seen Lincoln at various points, like along the road and remembering conversations, kind of I think about the, the Elvis phenomenon, right? No, Elvis didn't die. I saw him at McDonald's in 1982. He was ordering a Big Mac. Like, right, right. Um, so what, what did you learn from your research in these areas? Um, did, obviously they probably didn't, weren't talking to Lincoln, but did you unearth anything, any deeper either truth or understanding about how these things came about, or was it just sincere belief and in these situations that may, that probably didn't happen because Lincoln wasn't there? Yeah. I mean, there's no question that they didn't happen. Um, But I mean, it's, you know, these, these things were experienced by people who were um, enslaved, you know, they, they were 
they they had their lives were all bereft of hope in ways that we can't uh, really understand. Um, somebody like Lincoln, who for them represented the antithesis of of everything that they had been forced to endure. Uh, what a powerful figure! I mean, it's really a religious thing, I think, as much as as anything else, um, to see to want to see this person. It's like seeing Jesus. I mean, you mentioned that there's, you know, other than Jesus, Lincoln has the most words written about him, but Jesus and Lincoln are very, very similar figures when you think about it. Uh, their, their trajectories are extremely similar um, and their effect upon their, their, uh, their countrymen and women is very similar. And, you know, I don't mean to overstress this similarity, but there are definitely similarities. Well, Lincoln died on Good Friday. That I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then he rose again in my, in my book anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that, and that, that, that occurred to me. I was, I was wondering if you were going to go that route. I was, but, but before I, again, before I kind of understood that this was more like a kind of a, a straight take on it, I didn't, I wasn't sure if you were going to kind of go down that road of the, the resurrection um, three days later, because there were certainly people, um, you know, that, that did, that would hope that hope Lincoln would would mm-hmm. um would would come back after um okay so uh what's you know what's next for you uh, anything else on the horizon that is kind of you're going to go the historical fiction route again no, or I, are you going in other directions now more and more I, I've been writing historical fiction I mean the the I've been writing uh, my first novel was was what I call a uh, a science fiction novel disguised as a fantasy. Uh, my second novel was kind of the opposite. <laughs> it was like a uh, a fantasy novel that was uh, disguised as science fiction. Um, and then I I had this opportunity to write a um, that just came was offered to me to write um, a, a sequel to the Universal Monsters, you know, movies uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, all those famous pictures. Um, I was offered the chance to to write the sequel uh, to Dracula. Um, so I did, and I set that in, uh, that the closing days of world war one, um, in, in a, uh, an asylum, uh, for victims of, uh, shell shock had to do a ton of research for that. And a lot of primary, uh, source material. That's when I, that's when I understood the, um, the utility of, of, uh, the scaffolding history provides for a story. Um, and there, there too, I, I first kind of understood the way in which, um, literary history could be merged with, um, with history, history in a work of fiction. And, and in, in that book, you know, obviously I was stealing from Dracula, but I also wove a lot of, uh, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland stuff in there as well. Um, and after that, uh, I wrote, um, uh, a two book fantasy series. It's really a trilogy. The third has yet to be written. Um, that's set during the, the seven year war, uh, in Europe. Um, and, uh, that was a very different kind of challenge, historically speaking, because there, the, there was not so much primary source material for that war. And there was not so much, um, beyond like the, you know, the, the, you know, big set 
battles and things like that uh, to work with. But nonetheless, I felt like that I had found my um, my metier as a as a writer, and it and it had to do with historical fiction and and bringing in literary history, mashing it up, and coming out with something new. And that's what I've more or less done ever since. And my the book I'm working on right now is um, it's sort of similar in a way. I mean, it's but it's it's set in a more recent history. It's like it's set in the um, in 1969 around during the weekend of the moon landing. But that's still at this point. That's still the deep dark past. Yeah, that that counts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, great. Looking forward to uh, see, seeing that when it comes out. All right. Well, um, let's see. Uh, we always uh, wrap up the, the episodes by going around and talking about our uh, recommendations. Uh, so, Paul, what do you have for us here? All right. Uh, so, like I, I said at the outset, this is kind of a personal uh, use of history. Um, but I, but as I was thinking about uh, the terms of the question that you posed, it, it's what rose into my mind. So, um I'm, I'm kind of very interested in um, World War II history and, and uh, the Nazis uh, especially. Um, and one of the books that has made a big impression on me um, when I first read it, which I guess is about 20 years ago now, is um, Victor Klemper's um, diaries, um, I Will Bear Witness. Um, I don't know if you you guys are are familiar with those with that book or not. It's a kind of a towering uh, work of of history. Um, Klemper was a, a Jew who was married to a Christian woman who lived in Germany and recorded um, his experiences throughout um, the the Hitler years uh, and and beyond uh, into unfortunately. Uh, he was in the um, the Soviet sphere after the war, so things didn't necessarily get that much better for him. But he saw what was coming with Hitler very early, and and his his avowed purpose in keeping his diary was, as the title of the diary um, suggests, "I will bear witness." So when Trump <laughs> when Trump was elected president, I felt like our country was. Um, was treading down a very dangerous path. And I felt as though we were in fact recapitulating the, the steps that Germany had, had followed. And, and um, certainly that seemed to me to be a very present danger. So I turned to this book, which had provided me with so many insights into, um, uh, into the, the history of Germany and into the mentality of Germans and Jews during that period of time. And I started, you know, leafing through it, and I was struck that um, it, the 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 calendar of 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 those books aligned perfectly with with our calendar. December, you know, second, nineteen thirty nine was the same as December second. It was like a Tuesday, you know, in in twenty twenty in twenty sixteen or whenever, right? So I realized that I had a blueprint here in Klemperer's diary for Trump's reign as president in, in this country. So I created a Twitter account called Witness Bear. Uh, and every day I would take a tweet out of Klemperer's diary and post it on Twitter. And it was incredible to see um, how, how often 
there would be just like a unbelievable, uh, um, not just even a parallel, but like, like, uh, like, like, you know, two layers just fitting together perfectly. It was, it was frightening, but, but also fascinating. Um, and I kept that up for the entirety of Trump's presidency until he lost. Uh, and then I think I kept it up until the transfer of power, uh, which we almost didn't have. Uh, and then I laid, and then I laid it aside, uh, in hopes that I would not have to pick it up again. But of course, uh, I yet may. Yeah. I hope you don't have to pick it up again in 24. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that to me was just such a great example of the way, I mean, I'm, I'm a regular person. Um, and here's a book that had meant a lot to me because of my interest in history. Um, and yet current events unfolded in such a way that this book began to speak to me with a prophetic uh, power. And that's what I was seeking to express to others through this um, Twitter account, which became, you know, kind of like a, a, um, an exhibition in, in some way, right? It was, it was not, just a, not just a Twitter account. It was a creative expression. Is that account still yeah. online? Yep. I might check that out. I, I didn't know you were doing that. That's awesome. All right, Jimmy, what do you have to recommend this week? So as you know, I tend to focus a lot on pop culture and music and things that I guess if you follow the 20 year rule, our history, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really pushing it on this one. Um, <laughs> but uh, another kind of dark period in American history with some, with a lot of bright spots too. So um, in 2017, Lizzie Goodman wrote this uh, book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City from 2001 to 2011. So the, the darkness that I'm talking about is obviously the um, the specter of 9-11 looms large. Uh, not so much in, well, more so in the documentary. So what I wanted to talk about was actually uh, Will Lovelace's documentary of the same name based on that book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. And it's a really great look at the music scene in New York in the early 2000s. So we're talking the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, the Rapture, the Moldy Peaches, obviously the Strokes, um, LCD sound system. So it's um, it's a fascinating look at these these people who came together kind of similar to what happened in the late seventies in New York around uh, with the punk scene. And then um, the transition of that uh, in a city that where a music scene for the most part had gone, obviously you have the rise of um, rap in the late eighties and, and in the mid nineties, but guitar music um, for the most part was gone. Things had shifted in New York city. Um, so this is really about the, the rise of that happening again. It's something, another similar, uh, similarity to punk. You have something very similar happening in England at the same time with guitar music coming back, um, to the fore with bands like the Libertines. So in the seventies, you have, you know, this punk movement happening in New York with bands like the Ramones and, um, and others, but you also have the counterpart on the other side of the pond with the Sex Pistols and the Clash and stuff. So it's a really great, um, documentary that, delves into what's going on with these bands, but also the larger world that's happened, the larger world of New York city and the music scene at that time. So uh, highly recommend the documentary. It's worth, you know, the, the two hours of your time. And then you can go back and dive into uh, Lizzie's book. 
Yeah, that sounds excellent. I'm going to definitely check that out. I mean, I was I I I was living in New York through through that period. I saw a lot of those bands. I mean, not the not the early punk bands because I didn't get to New York until the um, early '80s. But uh, I definitely saw all those other bands. What a great time to be in New York. It's not like that anymore. No, I was having conversations with uh, with my friends. I I grew up in upstate New York, um, but was in New York City a lot, um, especially after 2001. My cousin had moved down there. I was living in San Francisco, but was living cheaply enough at that point that I found myself spending, you know, a week at a time on his couch every every other month, skateboarding and going out. And that seems so interesting because that time, because there's this awareness that's developing within, I guess that would be those of us in what would that be gen x at the time so but there's also this like grittiness to it so there's this growing awareness of you know of race of sex of like all these forces in the world but there's also this malaise that you know seems to be uh there with with generation x that if you look at the current generation um it they're just i don't know if there would be that same type of approach to music and the world just because of how our mindset and how the world has changed. But yeah, New York at that time period was a, a lot of fun, probably too much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, the, the book is is really interesting. And the, uh, the I didn't know there was a documentary about that. That's cool. I'll check that out too. All right, I'm going to recommend, well, I've got a, there's a couple recommended recommendations kind of all tied into one, I suppose. Um, one is that the other, uh, a week or so ago, uh, my wife was watching the community episode on pillows and blankets, which is the kind of the parody of the Ken Burns civil war, uh, series, um, which is an amazing episode, probably one of the best episodes in this, in the series. Um, so th- that's a recommendation right there is to check out the, uh, pillows and blankets episode on community. Um, but uh, after seeing that episode, uh, my wife a- asked if I wanted to, you know, f- track down and watch the actual Ken Burns Civil War series. And of course, yeah. So, you know, recommendation number two is to find a wife that's as big a nerd as you are, I suppose. <laughs> but so we we found the um, we found the DVDs at the library at the you know our city library, and uh, and and watched it uh, from start to finish. Um, and I don't think I had ever actually watched the thing from start to finish. Um, it's it's an amazing series. It's it's you know it's, it's deserves all of the awards and accolades that it has earned over the years. It's an amazing uh, piece of uh, documentary uh, filmmaking. Um, you know, totally groundbreaking in 1990. It's a little you know it might be a little bit cliche today, but back then this was cutting edge. This was amazing, amazing stuff. And it's it's a it's a great uh, it's a great series. Uh, but the amusing part was watching it with um, with my wife, who's not a historian by any means, and only knows the stuff in the hist- from the Civil War that, that I've talked to her about. And one of the things that she and I have often talked about was uh, Ulysses S. Grant and his attitude towards warfare, which is that I have all these resources and I'm going to crush you until you die, regardless of what how long it takes, how no matter how much blood is spilled. I'm going to just crush you because I have more resources than you do. And so it was interesting to watch the series because Grant doesn't really come on the scene until halfway through the war. The first half of the war was a string of just Union Army bumbling. They had, you know, two to one for soldiers. They had umpteen times the, the amount of resources, wagons, you know, food or uniforms. 
and they were just utterly incompetent. And so my wife just kept getting more and more frustrated the whole time thinking, God damn it. Why are these people so incompetent? Why is this war dragging on so long? When does Grant get here? And so I had to keep telling her that, well, no, Grant's coming. <laughs> and, and every now and then in the, in the series, they would see like, and then you list, at this point, list as Grant was, you know, he was still drunk at this other obscure posting and did, was playing no role in anything. And, and Lisa would be trembling with rage waiting for when he's going to come on the scene um, because she has that same attitude towards solving problems is that, you know, cut your losses uh, if you're going to lose or over crush it with overwhelming odds. And so, uh, you know, we, we always joke about that, the old movie Black Hawk Down, um, and she always says it was an utter waste of resources to send guys to go in to retrieve the bodies of the, of the dead soldiers because all you're doing is creating more dead people. And so we often joke about Black Hawk Down whenever she's being unsentimental about something. But when it, but finally we get to the point in the Civil War where Grant comes in, and, and from that point on she was just cheering because yes, he's he's finally nailing those Confederates to the wall. <laughs> and so the so I guess that's a recommendation is just watch the Civil War with my wife. But the uh, the the thing that was interesting about that series to me, it was created in 1990. Uh, which means that the kind of the overall interpretation has changed a little bit since then. Um, and the thing that kind of drove me nuts about the series, though, was its emphasis on using a historian. It's not really a historian. It was a writer named Shelby Foote, yeah. um, who was who wrote a very popular kind of narrative history of the, of the Civil War. He was. Uh, I'm sure you all have seen these. These uh, seen him in the uh, in the Civil War, but he's the, the Southern gentleman. He's got the the drawl. He's got a uh, you know an amusing anecdote that is kind of relevant to what they're talking about at that moment, but also not really. Um, but he has all these these. He's he's kind of the color commentator, and and but the thing that kept driving me nuts is that he is. Even for 1990, he was representing such an old interpretation of the Civil War. One of the first things he says is that the Civil War was a failure to negotiate. It was a failure to compromise. And of course, you know, any historian, even before 1990, historians were like, this isn't a compromise thing. What could, what's the compromise when it comes to slavery? Do you allow it or not allow it? There's not really a way that you can compromise on that. But yet he was this, this, his, this, writer who was and this kind of became kind of became one of the themes of the entire series was look at this tragedy that could have been avoided if only north and south had you know talked to each other and he it was just so so frustrating um that's so, ridiculous. so that's that's the and part there of it wasn't I a compromise in place that eventually led to this because there could no longer be a compromise <laughs> i know exactly let's see 1820 1850 uh the you know kansas nebraska let me keep going with <laughs> there were a lot of so anyway that was so that's the part i don't recommend i guess is the shelby foot parts of that series <laughs> but the rest of it is amazing and, and he, so he i encourage everybody really to check it out he became the breakout star of that of that series that reinvigorated interest in his uh, in his popular histories and in, in his novels as well. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, he also was a huge fan of Nathan Bedford Forrest. He was. Um, yep. Who was, you know, was one of the first grandmasters of the KKK. And so there's there's some problems there, too. But yeah. um, he, he, he makes an appearance or at least is mentioned in Lincoln Stein. Oh, was he? I missed that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll have to, I'll, I need to go back and find that now. Cause just, just, just <laughs> so I can, just so I can curse the heavens. Um, 
Anyway, the Civil War, you know, I'm not going on a limb by recommending the Civil War because, of course, everybody in the world recommends that Civil War series. But, um, what a bold recommendation. I know, isn't it? Really? I'm really going out on a limb here. So that's, that's, that's my recommendation. So, Although recommending that we come watch it with your wife. I'm surprised it was from 1990. I thought it was much older than that. I thought it was like mid-80s, but yeah, it's not, well, it's copyright 1990. I mean, maybe it broadcast before then, and that's just maybe the, the, the copyright that maybe it was renewed in 90. I don't know. But um, yeah, late, yeah, I'm sure it was, I'm sure they were writing it throughout the late 80s. It was a huge undertaking, yeah. but um, yeah, but oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a... It's an old vision of the Civil War that when I was in grad school and I took my first uh, readings in Civil War history class, um, the teacher pointed to that specific interpretation that it was a failure to compromise. And, and she kind of put that as, as this is the this is the old way of thinking that there was like the state's rights crowd back in the, you know, the turn of the 20th century, the Dunning School and all of that. But the one the, the group that took the place of the of the of that. Um, who didn't want to go all the way and say that it was the fault of slavery, they kind of found this as a middle ground, is that, oh, it's just a failure to compromise. And it's just such a frustrating perspective. But But granted, the thing was, you know, that series was made like 35 years ago, so how much can I complain about it? But still, um, that that was my, my sticking point. So anyway, that's that. So, Paul, thank you so much for agreeing to come talk to us for a while. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, great to meet you, Paul. This was fun. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Jimmy Finnessy and Paul Whitcover, I'm Rob Denning. Happy Lincoln hunting.